This is History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. Hope you're having a fantastic day. I have two guests on the show today. I have Greg Kimball. He is the Director of Public Services and Outreach for the Library of Virginia. And Maureen McGinnis, she's a professor of art history and American studies at the University of Virginia. She's also the curator of To Be Sold, Virginia and the American Slave Trade. Uh, And that's at the Library of Virginia right now. Uh, Excellent, excellent exhibit. And uh, she's also the author of, um, among other books, uh, Slaves Waiting for Sale. Abolitionist Art and the American Slave Trade, uh, a you know, bit of the exhibit actually you know, focuses on um, the specific paintings of slaves being sold in Richmond that are just, you know, really just fascinating, fascinating paintings. Uh, and a lot of the exhibit kind of rotates around that. Um, but the, the whole thing is really amazing. Um, you know, we're obviously talking slavery in Richmond, um, primarily... Uh, the slave trade, right? Not just, you know, how slaves lived. I'd like to cover that in the future. Um, but this is mostly just about, you know, the traders, the, the actual slaves, how they were marketed, you know, different ways. You know, what were these folks, how were they dressed? Um, you're getting into a lot of the, the really important details um, that make this, bring this story alive, right? It's a, a fascinating topic that uh, a lot of people, you know, many people do shy away from digging too deep into um, because, I mean, frankly, it, it doesn't f- always feel very good to, to look into the, you know, directly into the, the darkest places of American history. Uh, but it's dark, uh, but it's an amazingly important story. You know, hopefully we can shine a little light on it by, you know, bringing it out of the darkness. Um, and the focus of this story is a lot of it's enrichment. Right. The international slave trade, you know, goes a lot of places, but the internal slave trade, uh, a lot of it is focused here. Um, the, the hallow grounds we walk on, right. The, uh, continuously talking about it now with the, the conversations about the ballpark in Shaco Bottom, which we do get into slightly, um, kind of try to, you know, parse out some of the details of what they're talking about, how the impact of that, um, would be on the historical footprint of a ballpark that would be down there. Uh, I will reiterate again, the Library of Virginia does not have a position. Um, Maureen McGinnis does not have a position. History replays today. I think I've said my position before on the, the baseball episodes. Just build a stadium. Do it somewhere. Come on. Get with it. Um, but again, the, the conversation gets into some some details that are actually pretty surprising. I mean, I thought they were pretty surprising. Uh, you know, it really illuminates this, this terrible industry that was here in Richmond. Um, you know, and frankly, the entire country benefits from, from Richmond and from the slave trade. Um, but you should go down and check out the exhibit at the library of Virginia. Uh, if you can get down there, you should, uh, the, the conversation does cover some of the amazing things. Um, but to get down there and see some of the objects, to see the paintings, uh, it's pretty powerful to actually see what it is she's talking about. They're also going to be really expanding the conversation with some talks. 
the first one coming up is going to be Objects of Oppression and Liberation, uh, Slavery Artifacts, and the American Civil War. And that's going to be on Tuesday, November 4th, from 12 to 1. Um, and that'll, that'll feature uh, Dr. Philip Troutman, a professor at George Washington University, and Greg Kimball, which you will know from the actual podcast episode you're listening to right now. Um, when you get down there, tell them you heard about it on History Replays Today. And, and oh yeah, did I mention that it's free? Um, the exhibit, the talk, it's all free, right? That's a pretty good price. And you can find out more information about the other talks that they have coming up. Uh, and that'll all be at, uh, on the Library of Virginia website. Uh, it has all the information that you'll need there. As well, you can also go to the uh, Library of Virginia um, blog post, uh, which is out of the box, which I will actually link to uh, on this post at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, and I'm going to also put a link. Uh, Maury McGinnis does actually talk about uh, a website that describes the, uh, all the ships that actually come from Africa um, and actually list them and try to get, you know, tracing some of the ancestry back. Um, don't have the exact website as of recording this, that's mostly because I slacked on that. Um, but hopefully by the time I post it, I'll have it um, there at historyreplaystoday.org. If you don't see it there, go uh, check it check back. Uh, and as soon as I get it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually have it up there. Um, but if you want to go and check out some of the, the sites that, you, that we talk about uh, in Shaco Bottom, uh, you can do that with... River City Sags on a on a their their Black History tour, uh, fantastic uh, you know tour that does not ex- it's not exclusively about slavery, uh, you know River City Sags Black History tour it actually covers, you know, the the entirety of the Black History up until um, uh, you know the Civil Rights Movement here here in Richmond, um, Jackson Ward, uh, but it, we do actually we'll go by and point out some of the things that that were actually discussed in this episode. And River City Segs is the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. Um, it's the only Segway tour company in Virginia that has a, a indoor Segway specific training area. You can find out more information at rivercitysegs.com on Facebook, uh, on Twitter at eight hundred four Segs, uh, or just call three four three. 6105. That's 804-343-6105. Um, yeah, go do that. And you can also support another fantastic sponsor of the show, uh, The Farm Table. What is The Farm Table, you ask? Well, it's fantastic, fresh, local veggies that are shipped directly to your doorstep. Uh, all the, I mean, these veggies are so fresh, it's within 48 hours of them coming out of the ground, they're at your house. Right. And again, I have worked at grocery stores in my life in the produce section, and I can tell you, not including the amount of time it takes them to pick and transport the stuff to the grocery store, 48 hours, way more than that. Sometimes more than a week in the cooler, in the back of the grocery store. Right. That also doesn't count how long it sits out on the shelf. Right. Fantastic. You know, locally sourced. 48 hours is not long to get the stuff to you. Um, you can find out more information at thefarmtable.org, right? And when you go to sign up there, uh, use the promo code HRT2014, HRT2014, and you'll get $15 off, right? That's that's a good deal, right? $15 off when you use the promo code HRT2014 
sign up at thefarmtable.org, get all the information you might need there. You know, a little bit of it does come back to the podcast when you use that promo code. So help support History Replays today. Get yourself some fresh veggies delivered right to your house. It's fantastic. And that promo code, it's only good through 2014. So act now. Do it. HRT 2014. And actually, before we get to the conversation, um, I know that slavery brings up a lot of uh, emotions. A lot of people want to talk about this. So, you know, let me know what you think of this episode, right? Let me know what you think about the topic. And you can comment at historyreplaystoday.org right on the this post. Um, you can also contact me via uh, Facebook, um, History Replays Today. Like that page. You can also comment via Twitter. That's at History Replays. I'm on Tumblr as well. You can also just email me, Jeff Major at HistoryReplaysToday.org. That's J E F F M A J E R at HistoryReplaysToday.org. So, as we get into the conversation, we're going to start out really kind of talking about the differences uh, between the international slave trade and the domestic slave trade. Um, these are very you know, different, they're different chapters, right? Richmond doesn't have a huge impact on the international slave trade. It's the domestic slave trade where Richmond really, you know, comes into, uh, uh, and comes into prominence and comes into play. Um, so let's hear Greg Kimball talk about it. I see in Richmond that the stories of the domestic trade and the transit line trade have sort of been almost morphed into a continuous story, which they mm-hmm. are not. And I think that's one of the things that is, and I'm not sure where that came from. Um, we published a number of years ago, a long time ago actually, a fairly definitive book here at the library, which was Slave Trade Statistics for Virginia. And uh, by the 1760s and uh, 70s, you have places where the boats are landing. And uh, so you see Bermuda 100. I think there may be one reference to Osborne Landing, which is fairly close to Richmond. But the fact is, Richmond was uh, barely a, a city. It was right. just been become, it just become the capital, still a very small population. Um, Bermuda 100 by the way, the reasoning for that is pretty simple. It's at the confluence of the James and the Appomattox River. So it's the perfect spot right. for transatlantic trading. Now, that didn't mean that there weren't people who were traded in Richmond itself that were resold here. That certainly would have been going on. Right. But, yeah, we, have, we really don't have much of a story in terms of the transatlantic trade. But that's like the, the – to me, it seems like that's the narrative that's easy to tell. It is, and it's one that we know well and that we've been telling in our schools for a long time. So while in my childhood there was actually very little discussion of slavery at all, Mm. in recent decades there's been considerably more attention paid to slavery. But the story that's often told and that makes it into the big world narratives, as it should, is the story of the international trade. Because that was the massive migration of 12 million people from the continent of Africa to populate the New World. But what we often then lose sight of is how that played out in the United States, what became the United States of America. And of those 12 million people, only 500,000 are brought to what ultimately becomes the United States. And then even within that story, in the state of Virginia, 
our particularities because many of us are very well aware that participation in the international trade was ended by the Constitution in 1808. But Virginia, in its state constitution, ended it in 1788. And then the trade that is continuing is particularly going into South Carolina. Mm-hmm. and New Orleans. Those are the kind of two main ports that are still receiving lots and lots of international trade. Um, but in 1788, Richmond's not much of a city. Right. The boats are not coming this far north. They're mostly coming to what they called the Upper James. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a really fabulous website now where you can find all the slave trading voyages, where in Africa the people were coming from, and where they ended up in the United States. Wow. And it's a great resource. Do you know that offhand? Not offhand, but I could, I could I'll send it, it to you, you and you could edit it. Yeah, in. I'll add that into the, I'll add that in later. Yeah, that'd be good. I, w- I would also add that I think there is a, uh, being a public historian, it always strikes me that popular culture plays a role. And let's face it, for uh, my generation, Roots, Roots. was a mm-hmm. groundbreaking uh, thing that revealed the Atlantic trade to people. And again, I, I think it... Uh, that's partially why the Atlantic trade is what we think of when we say the slave trade. Right. Well, and it's not that old even. You know, I think this story is still, you know, I actually just had this discussion, this is less than a month ago, with um, which someone we're just going to call another tour guide, um, that for we were talking about a black history tour and they were saying, do you go by the Reconciliation Triangle? And I was like, you know, I normally don't go by there because it's not really that relevant. The statue's not that old, but it's a monument to the international slave trade, which is not that prevalent here. Um, And she said, oh, yes, it was. And I was like, no. And she was at a computer and Googled it and was like, look, I just found 20, you know, thousand websites that were like international slave trade, Richmond, Virginia. And I was like, you know, just exactly what you were saying is do the chronology. It's not a city, right? There's nothing really here. Um, even at the even 1800 ish, you know, we're still not, you know, that. So, you know, it's, you know, the, the folks at the St. John's Church for the Second Virginia Convention are here because there's nothing here. Right. So <laughs> now, what's what's tricky about that is, while historically it's not playing a role in any significant way in the international trade, the story still matters enormously to Richmond. Right. Right. Because the enslaved people who were living in Richmond in later generations are the product of that trade. Right. Right. And so, you know, the spirit of the reconciliation statue, which is really about the forced movement of people from a continent to another continent, should be honored. Right. Absolutely. And recognized. But the mechanism of how they got here has a few more steps before they ended up in Richmond. Right. It just seems like the monument's in the wrong city. Like, I feel like if it was in Norfolk or, or something, it would, it, or it would be more appropriately yeah. there. Well, Charleston especially. Charleston is really yeah. the epicenter for the direct importation of mm-hmm. enslaved Africans into what became the United States. Right. Let alone the fact that the vast majority of people in the, in the international trade are not coming to what became the United States. Right. They're, they're going to the Caribbean. They're going to Brazil. Brazil. Um, that's where most of the uh, enslaved people who are transported in the in the time before the United States even exists are going. Sure. So it's a it's a bit of a you know, and that plays unfortunately in a very perverse way into the story of the domestic trade. Right. 
right? right? Because it's the natural, the ability to have natural increase in the population in the United States that means it can afford to eliminate the international trade. Right. It doesn't need it. Right. That's right. And so, and I guess that begs the question of when does Richmond become a player? Yeah, so it's it's an evolution and it expands over time. So um, since I published my book in 2001, I've spent more time really trying to tease this fact out because uh, my book, Slaves Waiting for Sale, Abolitionist Start in the American Slave Trade, which was published in 2001 by University of Chicago Press, focuses really on the period of the 1850s. Um, which is when the trade was really well developed in a modern business industry in the city of Richmond. Before the exhibition, I've continued to do additional research in order to answer this question. How extensive was the trade in Richmond in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s leading up to the 1850s? And what I've learned is that in the 1820s and 30s, there is trading going on in Richmond, but it is a very diverse sort of trade, and it's not just the slave trade. So mm -hmm. there are being people who are there are people who are being bought and sold, but it's mostly part of a general estate resale business. So somebody would be in business as an auctioneer or a commission merchant and when somebody died and their estate needed to be liquidated, they would sell everything. Mm -hmm. And that would include livestock and furniture and real estate and people. And that really continues to the 1820s and 30s. And there aren't really developed businessmen in the city of Richmond trading only in people. And they're selling mostly at public locations, the most popular of which was a place called Eagle's Tavern. And it's really... Do you have any idea where that was? It's on 11th in Maine, is that right? That sounds about right. -ish. Yeah, I could look That's it up. I, I have it. It's just not That's tripping fine. off the tongue. <laughs> and then... And that continues the 1830s, even early 1840s. It's really the mid to late 1840s where you see people who had previously been auctioneers and commission merchants begin to really specialize in selling people and people mm -hmm. only and developing jails where they will gather up people from the countryside until they have a large number they can commodify them and prepare them for sale and turn to the business of selling only people. Right. Now, elsewhere in Virginia, that business had started earlier. So very importantly, in Alexandria, Virginia, which was then still part of the District of Columbia, a group, a, a pair of partners called Armfield, sorry, Franklin and Armfield? Franklin and Armfield, thank you. Don't, don't cut Franklin out of the deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Called Franklin and Armfield, established business together in 1828. And they're the ones who in many ways are the first really modern slave traders. They developed a network of traders of people who are out in the counties finding people to buy, sending them to Alexandria where they have a jail a compound of buildings where they would hold people, prepare them for sale, make they had a tailor shop on presents, they would make them new sets of clothes, and then they would put them on a ship and ship them around, particularly to Natchez. That was their primary end point for their trade. And they're the ones who really sort of turned slave trading in Virginia into a modern business commercial enterprise. And then other people began to imitate them 
and it's Richmond that becomes the bigger site after Alexandria, taking right. over in the 1840s. And one of the really interesting things is this exhibit is happening now because there's this great body of new research that's right at this moment coming out about a lot of this. I think Josh Rothman has been working yes. on the Franklin and Armfield story. And then you've got the new book, um, um, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, uh, by a historian at Cornell. Named Ed Baptist. Ed Baptist. And you've got a new book by uh, uh, that's coming out about um, um, the trade, uh, Calvin Schirmerhorn, who will be speaking here. So there's just this explosion of, of research that really in many ways confirms much of what we are what we know but adds a much greater level of detail about how all of this operated right and I think that's um in it's an interesting aspect because you were talking about it earlier downstairs is um, that I guess part of the deal is like I, what I understood is that you know it is inherent in how you're going to distribute getting rid of folks you know just getting property estates sales um, but also maybe a tobacco like of the damaging soil having excess people does that exist or is that well so what what happens in states like Virginia and Maryland is you know by the 19th century their agricultural infrastructure is entirely built out there's no new land right. and they have shifted from primarily from a tobacco cultivation to wheat and other crops which are not nearly as labor intensive as tobacco had been. Okay. And there's no new land. Yeah. And so as enslaved people in Virginia continue to have children and families and their numbers grow and grow, there's no need for them in the agricultural enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so that's solved in Virginia in a number of ways. One is that they're put to very modern activities. Yeah. They're working in Tredegar doing ironwork. Right. They're working in the tobacco manufactory preparing tobacco into cigarettes and cigars and for export. But there are still more people right. than planters need. And so planters have this very ready capital, right, an investment that they can turn into cash very quickly. And the slave trade takes advantage of that. Well, I think that's a really interesting concept that I never really thought of. Those, like what you're, you know, you kind of mentioned a second ago, is that having people actually going from place to place and saying, "Hey, you got any extra, extra slaves?" I mean, that is, um, it, it's one of those things that you know that you, you kind of think about it, but then you, you kind of stop at a certain point. It's like where do all these folks that are being sold come from? And I think that's, I don't, that's just a really, I don't know, I don't really have anything to say about it more than just. Okay, wow. Well, and the end result of that is almost always family separations. Because Absolutely. what traders are interested in are people who are 15 to 30 years old. Right. They're not interested in entire family groups. Right. Right. And so, you know, we know that the slave trade is, is the, res the result of the slave trade is the breakup of hundreds of thousands of families. Right. And when somebody is sold away from your plantation, you have absolutely no idea sure. what happens to them and where they go. Right. Um, I mean, is there indication that people would care? Oh. The owners? I mean, oh, the, the owners. Families, or is there, are they, do they care? Or, I mean, is there... This gets us into the realm of the myth of, of slavery that has been passed down, unfortunately. There used to be a very pervasive notion that 
planters only sold when they were absolutely desperate and you know going into bankruptcy or something and that they would try not to break up family units. Now, of course, there may be a few masters who cared about that, but what we know about the big picture is that neither of those things is true. Really? Yeah. Right. And, in fact, you can look at Virginia textbooks up through the mid-1960s and find this very sort of pro-slavery ideology myth right there in the textbooks. This right. is what was being taught in Virginia's school systems. Sure. Um, well into my childhood. Right. Um, Which kind of gets you to that interesting <clears throat> uh, public history question when people uh, talk about, oh my God, you're changing history. You know, you're, you're well, somebody in the, in the, on the front end has already told a story. Right. That story, was it really based in fact? I mean, that's what we do as historians. But there are many people who conceive of history as this unchanging thing, that sure. we must know all the facts right now. So how can it? How can this? How can another story emerge? Well, by doing a lot more research, and I think that's one of the great things with this exhibit. It spurred us as an institution, the library, to look deeper in our collections, and and particularly into court records to find this kind of level of detail. Sure. And uh, when you have as much stuff as we have in this building, uh, you know, just a single chancery case can be thousands and thousands of pages. Uh, that's what's required to really get at the facts. And the exhibition has really resulted in the unearthing of an extraordinary, rich, complex set of stories of personal narratives that are buried particularly in these chancery court records as people would testify to the impact of the slave trade on the breakup of their families on their experience of being sold through the trade a really really rich set of stories which are being turned into blog posts and publicized on the Library of Virginia's um, website absolutely where people can learn more and people can actually participate in the process of helping to transcribe these records as well huh. yeah which is a fantastic blog as well but I'll post that on the yeah thank you yeah, well. yeah. out of the box is, is uh, a great vehicle to get as Maury said get these 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 really really get down and dirty into the real stuff of what we do sure. as historians and to give people the opportunity to do that themselves absolutely and um, yeah, follow Library of Virginia on Twitter. Yeah, right? that's right. That? That's right. Absolutely. In you fact, find we, out all stuff. we even have a Twitter handle for the exhibition. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, you know your hashtag RVA slave trade. And one thing we are emphasizing is that we want this to be a conversation and a dialogue. So um, we want people to respond to the show. We want them to put things on Twitter questions, comments, thoughts, you know. I mean, that's the whole purpose of what we do, in my view, is to cause a conversation that's already happening. You know, the Slave Trail Commission, um, other people in the city have been exploring this. This is another opportunity for us to engage that. Mm -hmm. Particularly at a time when, let's face it, there is a conversation about what should be done in Chocolate Bottom. That's right. 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 And so the exhibition will hopefully give Richmonders who are interested an opportunity to learn at a much greater depth and breadth about the history of the slave trade right. and the role that it played in Richmond and Virginia's and the nation's history. Sure. Um, and the I got like a thousand. Like which which thing do I say? Um, <laughs> the uh, 
I'm gonna bring up the stadium thing. I'm gonna do that. So I I don't know if you I guess if you've seen it, and this is maybe a weird ignorance aspect of it, but I, I feel like there's where the stadium is. They're talking about building it, which I don't know if you even looked at. Do you even care about that or seen it? I the, it seems to me like where all the slave trading places are around the the space, right? So and, what we've learned is that the slave trade is particularly concentrated in one area on a street that was called Wall Street, colloquially, right. in the 19th century. And Wall Street runs roughly along the path of 15th Street and is under today's I-95. Right, where 15th right. Street would have originally been. Originally been right. right. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the trade is located. Yeah. But of course, there are always other locations. Sure. And they scatter out slightly up Shaco Hill towards the capital, mm -hmm. making it about as far as kind of, you know, 14th and maybe even a little bit onto 13th Street on some of the back alleyways. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit down the hill towards 17th and 18th. And so there are definitely some sites that are under the proposed footprint of the ballpark itself right and others that are under the footprint of other aspects of the last time I saw a proposed plan mm -hmm. they weren't the longest lasting and principal sites that were in use for decades but they were at use at one point they exist they yeah. existed which is probably a pretty good shot to say most of down like of Shaco Bottom Right. I mean, is implicated. And, and here's what's challenging, right. I think, for Richmond anytime they want to redevelop is that the entire city is implicated by the history of slavery. Right. Absolutely. And anywhere and everywhere we go, there is a history there and a story to tell. And I think it is incumbent upon us as historians to advocate before anything happens that we do the necessary historical research and that that is then followed by the necessary archeological research. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there are probably plenty of sites in the city where yes, there was a physical presence there, but there is no presence remaining. Right. right? We have mm -hmm. regraded, scraped and changed this city so much that there may not be any historical evidence. Then after that, and only after you know all that, can you make a decision of what kinds of development should take place on properties associated with particular histories. Sure. And I, I completely agree with all that, and we religiously don't, <laughs> particularly the library, take any position on, on, any, uh, on that proposal specifically. Sure, sure. But I would also say another... Oh, come on. Well, no. I'm just joking. Let, let, I'm just joking. <laughs> I also have no... Yeah, I, I, my position personally is if they would stop talking about it and do something, anything, please build a baseball field before we go and we have minor league. I mean, that little league is going to be the best thing we're going to have soon if they don't stop arguing and just do something, anything. That's my position. Sorry. Well, no, I, I'd expand out um, a little bit perspective-wise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it seems to me in preservation, it isn't just looking at footprints, okay, right. of buildings. We have to really think about the nature of an entire area. It's it's contiguous. It's mm -hmm. it's it's not little little postage stamps we're talking about, right? Sure. We need to think about what that entire area is. Now, 
there's already plenty of things on top of this as we speak, right? Right. So the question for me is that planning, exactly what Maury said, making sure we're doing right, and be conscious of what the use is. Mm-hmm. That's my thing is, is, is really think about is this an appropriate use? It's not we don't use the site, but how do we use the site? And as you say, too, uh, the same way I feel about the uh, the proposed museum, I feel the same way right. as Just you do about the ballpark. Let's let's do it. Let's do figure it. out what this thing looks like. Let's figure out what the most appropriate place would be for it, and then we can start to really have a conversation. And that's the other Absolutely. piece. We need to have the conversation, which is something that sometimes Richmond doesn't do so well. Absolutely. So I think that those are all the ways in which I would hope that when we come back to this, that we can do those things and do it right. Sure. Well, that's actually an interesting segue to the other thing earlier when I was trying to figure out which thing I was going to say, is the conversation, I think, is a very, um, it's an interesting thing. You know, we were talking social media stuff. I normally, before I talk to someone, I'll post, hey, I'm going to talk to this person about this thing. Anybody got any questions? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't get anything. Normally, someone will ask a question. Um, this particular time, it, I, I can't remember right offhand, but it was retweeted tweeted six times, but no one had a question, right? So there's like this interest, but I think there's a, um, I don't I don't know what it is if people are scared to say the wrong thing or what, but I definitely know there's a weird, the, I, I don't know, I think people want to have the conversation more, or are scared, or I don't, you know, I don't know. And that, the, that, the, that's possible. I mean, maybe the people do are scared of saying the wrong thing. It, let's face it, this is a really tough subject, and and um, hopefully uh, we will get get more of a conversation started. I, I will say though, we did some um, community conversations before we opened the exhibit, and uh, primarily showing people some of the artifacts that were going to be in the show and talking about some of the stories. I felt like we got some pretty strong feedback from people, yeah. that people were pretty honest about, um, again, the example of the painting with the people waiting for sale being very nicely dressed. That was something people said, hey, that couldn't possibly be real because you know, enslaved people didn't look like that. Well, of course, we know from Maury's research that they looked that way because they were being sold. They were a commodity. Right. Um, but that's a perfectly reasonable question for someone to ask, and they did ask that question. And I th- so I think uh, even today, as we went through the exhibit, I had a few people who commented, for instance, on this strange dichotomy between these beautiful paintings, in terms of art, beautiful paintings, not, not necessarily the subject matter, and then these very stark artifacts like the slave collar, the punishment collar, and how it's, it's, it's kind of a roller coaster ride. So, you know, I hope that we'll provoke people, you know, provoke might be the wrong word, but, but maybe a little bit, because we do, again, to tease out so people will start to talk about this. Sure. Right. And American, you know, the, the story of American slavery is always bound up within a set of contradictions that are virtually impossible for us to wrap our head around. Right. And I think the exhibit embodies some of that. And I think those contrasts you're talking about are part of that. And sure. it's not an easy exhibit. It's not easy subject matter. It's not easy material. Um, but I think it's really important for America as a nation to be honest about its history right. and to end the sort of denial um, of these histories, which have really formed such a key aspect of American history. Sure. I mean, 
most African Americans who historically have lived in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, their origins are in the Upper South and are embedded within the history of the American slave trade. Right. And this is a story that, that needs to be told. To push that a little further, too, we've talked today with some of the people who came to the exhibit about, you know, we all have personal histories how we contact this. So I'm a New Englander, and, and I did. I, I grew up that we were the good guys in the Civil War. Of course, I'm sure Southerners had the same, do the same thing. But good guys in the sense that we, the imag in our imagination, we were all, you know, uh, radical abolitionists. Right. Right. We were all, you know, like totally all about African American freedom, et cetera, which is completely false narrative, of course, just as false as any Southern narrative you might read about slavery. And this show talks about that too. It, it, it says, this is not a Southern story, this is a story about the United States. People in New England, in the Lowell, Massachusetts, in Manchester, New Hampshire, near where I grew up, these giant textile mills, it was all based around exploitation of African Americans. I mean, right. Because that's, you know, I mean, it was a system. Nobody gets out of this <laughs> clean. It, you know, there is kind of a national story here that, that, you know, and that's where I think, too, we escape the, the problem of personal guilt that I think people feel. And I understand right. that. That maybe some white people come into this and feel like we're bl we're blaming you. You did this. Your ancestors did this. Well, first of all, I'm not my ancestors, and nobody Absolutely. should feel that way. Um, but also, again, it's more I think a collective story, and I think we can understand it that way a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastically great way to say that. I mean, because there's always, it, and it always seems to be to me, it always makes me laugh that like the genealogy shows that they're on TV right now. Um, like Paula Dean is always like the one that like always comes, but it's like, here's your family lived in this beautiful plantation. Wow. And then they're like, guess what? They were slave owners. And they're like, oh my God. And you're like, come on. They're rich in the South, you know, in the mid, you know, what were you expecting was going to happen right there? Um, but you know, and then there's tears, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. There, um, there's a fairly predictable arc of those stories. You're absolutely right. Sure, yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, get ready. But then the, the, the uh, whenever they do black folks on there, it's always like, oh, God, here comes the slave part. And they're like, no, not yet. <laughs> you know, they're like, we have, you know, we're not going to turn that page yet. But you can see on their face that they're like, here comes the slave part. Um, but anyway, um, I don't know where, where that's supposed to mean. Well, well I think but. an important thing to follow up on that is, you know, it's, it's a rather natural desire that many people have to understand the path yeah. that their ancestors took through sure. American history. And for most African Americans, that's a virtually impossible thing to do. Right. Right. And, that's, and yeah. much of that reason is because of the slave trade. Sure. Right. Because there are no easy ways to make those connections across the trade. But one of the things that we hope will increasingly grow out of this research, this exhibition, is the fact that there are a lot of records. It by no means covers every person that was ever sold. And as we move forward in crowd transcription projects, as we're able to make these records available, increasingly more people might be able to find their family members, their ancestors, who were sold through Richmond's slave trade and, and other places, not just Absolutely. Richmond, but, but other cities. And there's an important role for this exhibition in moving genealogy forward. Absolutely. And, and, and we have an African-American narrative project 
which is focused on this in documenting through these really, in, you know, a lot of them which are, you know, we have this great chancery record collection that's digital. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God, Virginians, uh, your taxpayer dollars at work, um, uh, there's actually a recordation fee when you do a deed, for instance, that goes to the preservation of historical records, both at the county level and city level, as well as here at the library. And that's helped us digitize a huge amount of this data, which we now can push out to people on the web and actually have them literally read the real stuff and do the transcription. We've already got, in just a short period of time, about 50,000 stories. Wow. So, so I, think, I think it will revolutionize African-American genealogy if we can do that. What I really hope, and this is beyond the library at this point, but what we really need probably is a national coalition of, of, of pushing this out. And one thing I really find encouraging about genealogy today as I encounter people in our reading rooms Less of them are concerned about whether they're related to, you know, Charlemagne. Right, sure. <laughs> and more of them are, are just interested in the fabric of the story. Yeah. What was their experience? What did they go through? What was everyday life like in the 1850s? And, and they have a richer, more holistic view of what they're trying to accomplish. Right. I am going to pop in here very quickly. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying this episode, um, help invest in History Replays today. If you can donate, every little bit counts, you know, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it is. Uh, you know, $500 is, would be excellent, but every little bit counts, uh, right? This is somewhat of a labor of love. So help pay for some of the gas so I can go talk to some of these folks. I have some excellent episodes coming up. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can do that at historyreplaceaday.org. There's a support button there. You just click on that thing, um, and donate, you know, it'd be fantastic. Also support the sponsors, you know, River City Segs, The Farm Table, and let them know that you heard about it here at historyreplaystoday.org. Now let's go ahead and get back to the conversation. Thank you. Kind of getting back to the actual experience that these folks are having. So again, there's there's this uh, these folks that are tra traveling the countryside, um, basically, you know, uh, asking for slaves, right? They're saying, do you, and you got any enslaved people you're trying to get rid of? Um, like, what kind of transportation are these guys? I mean, is it, are they going up and down water, or they got, like, wagons, or, like... kind of depends where they are, um, and so it's varied. They're on horseback, they've probably got wagons, they're transporting by water. Um, by the time the railroad becomes developed, it's not at all uncommon for a trader to show up at a railroad, hand over... Okay. A few enslaved people to the railroad conductor, and then they are put on a train without the trader, right. sent to Richmond, and the Richmond traders kept enslaved people who worked for them at the railroad terminals, and they would then pick them up and bring them back to their jail in Richmond. So it becomes a very sort of mechanized process. So I'm assuming you have to be pretty no-nonsense. Um, oh. You know, so this is like not Oh, these from... are... These are no, well-known, mean, scruffy yeah. people. The, the slave traders do not come off in the accounts as um, people you wish to socialize with. Now, there are exceptions to that. Sure. Right? So some of these men gain enormous wealth and set themselves up to be socially prominent. 
So Franklin and Armfield in Alexandria, Virginia, who are really these kind of first modern slave traders, retire from slave trading. Franklin buys plantations in central Tennessee and in Louisiana, marries a very young heiress from a prominent planter family, and sets himself up as one of the grandest planters in central Tennessee where he's living. Beautiful plantation home, um, loads of money, right? right? And buys a little bit more social credibility by what he does. Uh, his partner, Armstrong, moves to Bashirba Springs, Tennessee. Oh, Armfield. Armfield. Yeah. Um, moves to Bashirba Springs, Tennessee, which is a Springs resort, um, buys the resort, develops it where planter class people come for entertainment, and leaves most of his money to found the university, uh, what we refer to as the University of the South, or Swanee. Huh. And so these people are not socially like, because I guess I was thinking even more like the Jokers, I mean, because you got to be, I mean, you know, if you're taking someone away from their family and then taking, you know, in my mind, there's like a long dirt road, right, in the middle of nowhere, right? Very easy for folks to, I mean, that's when you're like, I'm definitely getting out of here now, right? I mean, that's, you Ooh, know what I'm escaping from in from slavery was such an arduous task. I mean, think about it. You are. But, but I'm saying if you're going to do it. Right, like you've are, you've well, you've, you're shackled. Okay, so I guess that's what we're getting. Like, I mean, what, what you're kind manacled, of... right? Okay, probably wrists and feet. All right, fair enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're doing you this... don't know where you are. Okay. You don't know where you would go. Right. And any white person you're going to run into is going to throw you right back into slavery. Yeah, right. there, there are slave patrols that are constantly, uh, you know, patrolling the back country. Any any black person they encounter, they first they're going to say, where are your papers? Where are you supposed to be? I mean, that was a really powerful control system. Here in the city, you had a city police force that, to some large extent, existed to control the slave population in the city. So it was, it is, you had to be in a very particular position. Now, here in Richmond, for instance, you did have shipping going in and out, and that would have been one way that someone could escape. Uh, if you were living in Wheeling, Virginia, <laughs> isn't West Virginia yet, and the Ohio River sitting right there, and on the other side of it is a free state, that's another proposition. But if you're in the middle of Gooseland County, it's a little tougher. And forget that. What if you're in the middle of you know, Mississippi? Right. It's almost impossible. And so, but what you were saying is the actual, you know, like a Robert Lumpkin, like he's not going to be socially connected or or there are, I guess except there are a couple with well, a couple big Richmond traders mm -hmm. that do at least a, well one of, at least a couple are on city council right I mean are they, are they right. invited to dinner parties and stuff well, I mean, you know what I'm saying are they like that's the that's the yeah. I'm not are so they, sure about that now so yeah. so they're not like the, the elite like people aren't like oh I was with Robert the no. other day oh whatever like no, definitely not okay. but there are some exceptions here and there sure. um, there's a very prominent slave trader in Charleston South Carolina of the Desasura family who is a big planter family but he already had his status and became right. a traitor. Status is the word I was looking right. for. What's so. what's tougher is to come up through the slave trade and even if you make a lot of money, acquire social status. Right. And in fact, both Robert Lumpkin and Silas Amahandro live with women who are legally enslaved right. and have children by them. 
And they're certainly not being invited to prominent Richmond dinner parties. Right. And here, you you know, you have to remember the South, particularly Richmond, is not the typical Southern society I think we imagine. Or it was even popularized back in this time. It isn't just super elite and then poor white and then enslaved people. It's much more complex than that. First of all, you have free people of color, mm-hmm. as they were called at the time, or free Negroes. You have a merchant class, which isn't FFVs. They're not first families of Virginia necessarily. They might be. They are not going to belong necessarily to the best club in Richmond, but they still could be very powerful and still have a lot of money. They could still serve on city council, but they wouldn't be the, the real, you know, true, uh, her, you know, hereditary <laughs> elite that Virginia <laughs> pretended towards. And that did make a difference. I mean, that was a part of the way Richmond society was structured. So you ha- it's, it's a much more complex class system, I think, than we imagine it to be. Right. Um, because those guys, the, the, you know, the slave trade itself is centered, what we were saying, 15th Street, which, again, I guess going back to the ballpark, part of the reason is because that creek is there. Correct. Right? And it's, you know... It was some the, of the worst land in Richmond. Right. That's why the trade is there. And that landscape is, you know, phenomenally different, which, you know, the interstate more than likely probably is there to erase a lot of that, you know, history. Um, but that uh, is some of the lowest land. Again, there's a creek underneath there that's buried in the 1920s, so it's swampy. I mean, and it's not a pretty place to go. At right? the period we're talking, that creek was above ground. Right. And right. was not and a flooded. Place, and, and, and flooded, and there were there were tanneries up ri- upstream. I mean, it was pretty nasty. Now, again, remember, it's a pretty compact city here. So you do have some of the biggest hotels, which are fairly close to this. Right. The capital's just up the hill. Uh, the Odd Fellows Hall. I mean, this was uh, was still a pretty active place. Right. Uh, City Market sits right there, just as it does today, right. within a couple blocks. So it's it's people in the 19th century didn't separate these functions out as much as we have today across the landscape. Right. The difference in the 19th century was how you how high you lived. Right. That's right. Being elite meant you could live on Church Hill or Gamble's Hill, but you live in the bottom. Right. Right. And the thing that is clear about Richmond's location of its slave trade is Wall Street was not a street you went to unless you were looking for the slave trade. There's not much else there other than businesses related to the slave trade. Sure. Right. So there are some clothing dealers there. There are people who are involved in hiring out enslaved people. Um, there was a big industry in Richmond of um, people having you know, more enslaved people than they needed. They didn't sell them away through the trade, but they would hire them out to Tredegar for a year, or they would hire them out to somebody else as a domestic slave for the year. So those kinds of businesses are concentrated on Wall Street. There's no other reason to go there. Right. And it was not a, city, it was not a street that an elite woman would walk down. Right. Now, she would know it was there, and it intersected with Main Street, and with retail establishments that she would have visited. Right. Um, but she had no reason to turn there. Now, that was in great distinction, contradistinction to New Orleans, where the slave trade actually took place in the city's grandest hotel establishments in the very best room. Right. Because in New Orleans, the people who are buying are not traders, uh-huh. they're planters. And it is part of their economic prosperity 
to be participant in the slave trade. Okay. Right? So your sugar lands are expanding or your cotton lands are expanding. You've bought a new plantation. You go to the city of New Orleans. You stay in the St. Charles Hotel. You show up in the big rotunda of the St. Charles Hotel and buy the next 20 people that you're going to take back, back to your plantation. Right. So the cities have very different profiles of slave trading. Well, and I guess there is, because, I mean, St. Charles is like one chip place in the city that I know, so that would have been more, was, um, is that, that's going to be a grand ballroom where they're selling slaves there, right? I mean, is that? Not in Richmond. Not in Richmond? in New Orleans. There were some. Are there some, two St. Charles yes. hotels? Okay. There is a St. Charles in, in Richmond. Richmond. And there was Which trading. also sold slaves in, right? Yes, but oh. in the basement. Oh, you're confusing At folks. the back. All right. But in New Orleans at the St. Charles, it's in the grandest room. Okay. All right. So okay. the difference in Richmond is the slave trade is kind of tucked away. Mm -hmm. It's not completely hidden. Everybody knows it's there, but it's not celebrated. Sure. In New Orleans, it is celebrated. And um, I mean, I think that, you know, the, we kind of touched on the paintings that are involved um, in the, the, the exhibit. Um, and, and it really is fascinating. I mean, I think that a lot of people don't think about address cleaning folks up the marketing aspect of saying, look at how happy, you know, we talked about how you're rewriting the history now that we don't want to look at it, right? They didn't really want to look at it then, you know, so you clean them up. I'm sure they get a nice meal before an auction or something. So they look right happy, you know, I mean, um, so we know a lot about what slave traders did in order to prepare enslaved people for sale. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of it had to do to tending to their physical appearance. So, gray hairs would be plucked and scars would be filled in with wax and if they were thin they would be kept in jail long enough to fatten them up and then most importantly they were dressed for sale and put in much nicer clothing than enslaved people would normally wear but they were also threatened with violence constantly and right. slave traders would tell the enslaved how you're supposed to act at auction right and the enslaved people knew that if they did not respond properly and did not sell, that they would be beaten afterwards. Mm. And so many people react to the images of the slave trade and are find it difficult to understand why they don't look more emotionally anguished. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot to do with the fact that they couldn't. Right. Right, because of what would happen to them if they did not behave. And so it speaks very much to the, the double consciousness that many enslaved African Americans had to live under, under slavery, acting outwardly in a manner opposite to how they were feeling. Sure. So are they dressing these folks like, they're dressing them like white people, obviously, right? Or is it just the regular custom of? I would say they are dressing them in a way that you might encounter on some enslaved African Americans who were considered fancy girls, that mm -hmm. is women who are dressed predominantly for sort of sexual exploitation or sexual desirability. Um, people who occasionally would put enslaved people in nicer clothing if they worked in the house, mm -hmm. right? Or, and this is a, an entirely different story, we know that enslaved African Americans, when they had access to money, would very often spend money on clothing to go to church for right. Sunday best, um, for personal expression. So the clothing that they are represented in is not unrealistic 19th century clothing. 
it is just not what is commonly encountered on the enslaved. Okay. Hmm. All right, yeah. There's actually quite a, uh, and I'm certainly not a historian of costume, but there's quite a variation in in the paintings of of clothing, which is interesting to me. Uh, A lot of head wraps that you see in the images that may be more of an African style of, 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 uh, of dressing. So there are details in it that I think are interesting that may reflect different cultural practices, but I kind of feel the same way that, that to me it looks like fairly typical 19th century. So it's just regular. Reg, you know, uh, you know, Sunday go to meet and clothes. Right. Yeah. Mm. Right. One of the most sort of uh, descriptive accounts from the 19th century of dressing slaves for sale was left by a Richmond sculptor named Moses Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Moses Ezekiel, one of Richmond's best known sculptors, right? You know, a really famous sculptor eventually moves to Rome, lives mm-hmm. in the Baza Diocletian where he has his great studio. Um, his works are all over the city, um, all over the nation. Um, his grandparents had a clothing store on 17th Street, not too far from City Market, and their primary business was dressing slaves for sale. Huh. And he writes a recounting of his memories of because he hung out at his grandparents all the time of people being brought daily for sale. And in one of them, he talks about how one slave trader um, or the enslaved assistant working for him brings a group of people and basically says, these men get shirts, suits, pants, handkerchiefs, these men get only shirts and pants, and these men get only new shirts. So people were differentiated right. in clothing based upon their sort of perceived market value. Yeah. And more money was spent on those who they thought were kind of at the higher levels and that even better clothing would make an even bigger difference. Right. And he talks about you know, the special dresses kept aside for fancy girls. Well, it's a very strange, you know, because if it's if you're trying to say that these folks are less than human, that then you're dressing them in what you would consider human clothes, right? Well, isn't I mean, isn't you know what I'm saying? It's like I don't know. It seems like there would be a, it, the entire system is set up on the fact of saying that I'm better than. Well, yeah, you, on dehumanizing them completely. Right? You're you're not, you know. But then to say, oh, but at the sale, let's let's make you look like as close to us as possible. Right. It's is uh, that well. It's it's no different than marketing today, right? Uh, do we think that TV commercials truly are a represent a, a representation of anything real? I mean, I, I think I get, it's yeah. it's largely building an illusion, right. sure, um, a fantasy, a fantasy. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange illusion. I get the whole thing is strange, but um, well, it is. It's, so it's, it's you know, it's in, almost in incomprehensible. Yeah, in, that people are selling people. No, it, it, right. It, this it is a system strange. that was enshrined in America's history for decades. Right, but in, in Richmond as well, there's going to be a whole lot more. Like we're, you know, working in industrial settings, right? So are these folks, um, you know, it's part where I've always kind of wondered where did they get the skills in the first place, right? Because that's going to be a marketable thing, saying, oh, this person's got so much years experience doing whatever job you know there's some great stories about about that and and 
Now, there, are a, there is a whole artisan tradition that goes well back into the 18th century. So, I mean, they probably would have followed the same path. They would have apprenticed with somebody, learned the trade. Uh, a lot of the building trades in Richmond were pretty much dominated by African Americans, some free and, and, and slave people, too. There were some cases, though, like at Tredegar, where you had the strike in 1847, where Anderson tried to convince these British workers to train slaves to do some of the most uh, high-end ironworking that was being done there. And these, they walk out, you know, en masse. They just leave and say, no, we're not going to train. Uh, first of all, uh, we're certainly not going to train slaves to do our job. But secondly, those workers everywhere else in the world had the right to choose their helpers. Because who did they choose? Right. They, they chose their sons or a brother of a neighbor or someone that they knew. This was job security. So, right. they, so uh, sometimes slave owners did run into problems trying to get... Uh, impose what they consider a perfectly reasonable thing of, of training slaves to do certain work when they came face to face with uh, white working class people who were in some ways more independent minded than many workers are today. They really understood how powerful their skill was and that there was no book to tell you how to be an iron puddler. Right. Right? It had to come from transfer between people. So that was a, you know, it's like the guy who comes and fixes your computer. It's, it's a little bit of job security there. Mm -hmm. So um, it kind of went back and forth. Now, things like tobacco, where you did see many, many enslaved people who were hired, particularly working, um, that may well have been a skill that they had acquired uh, on the plantation. Right. Uh, and, they, and having been involved in tobacco agriculture and culture for a long, long period of time, you can easily see how that, that, that skill could get transferred to, an, to a manufacturing setting. And in the slave trade, people were sold if they for higher prices if they had skills. So you will see advertisements in right. the Richmond newspaper where they will specifically mention a seamstress, a cook, a, you know, a builder. I mean, so they, you know, if you had those skills, you then went on the market with a higher value. You weren't always purchased to do that thing, though. Right. right okay. And you can quite often find tales and, you know, in fact, part of the story of Solomon Northup is, you know, in some ways he's kind of hiding many of his skills part of the time um, because he knows it could reveal that he's actually free and he'll be beaten and the violence will get even worse. But so skills mattered. Right. Right. And increased your value. Sure. And because in Richmond, I mean, the... Is there not like a huge system of, of rental? Right. Huge. Yeah. Um, the, Negro and, hiring, it was yeah. often referred to. And some traders sidelight in that, and then there are people who just do that, that are hiring agents. So yeah, you, that's what I was saying. And it, and it involves, you know, we have a section in the exhibit on uh, Anthony, Anthony Burns, and he was hired into the city. And his master didn't even live in Richmond. He was hired to work at a, um, a flour mill, in fact. And I believe he was a cooper. He was making barrels. So, um, you know, it was a huge industry. Uh, if you look at between 1850 and 60, for instance, at the tobacco factories, um, you see that in 1850, uh, about 60% of the people working in, in the tobacco industry are enslaved. That flips by 1860, that they're increasingly um, relying on hired slaves. Why? Well, it's this simple. It's, it's, it's simple capitalism. You, you don't need necessarily a workforce in the entire year, for instance. 
right? You, business is cyclical. Right. So why would you want to have own 150 slaves who you are not employing part of the year? So hiring gives you uh, labor elasticity, as an economist would say, and perversely it creates this whole market in hiring. Sure. Um, and so those, is there a different relationship with um, someone, I guess within that so the complex social structure? Is there going to be an enslaved person who's here, owner here, everything, um, as opposed to someone, I mean, because you get, you know, cats away, mice will play type of thing. You know, if your owner's in Goochland and you're rented out here, I mean, you then have upper hand at that point with over these other folks or... Um, you get all kinds of strange permutations. The city council in Richmond in the 1850 was incredibly concerned with the fact that there were a lot of enslaved people not living with directly with people who supervised them. Some of them were that worked in factories. They weren't even housed at the factory. They were living out in the community. So it created this little crack of, of quasi-freedom, if you will. It was very limited, but a little bit of a window. Uh, but it scared the heck out of the, the people who ran the city. They saw this as a very potentially dangerous thing, So, which is why we have laws against the uh, gathering of more, I think it's more than five enslaved people at a time, was illegal, for instance, except for in a church setting. And there they had to have a white minister. Right. Huh. Um, and the relationship between these owners, like I guess we kind of addressed a little bit, Robert Lumpkin, they pretty much all the folks had what they would consider like common law wives, right? I mean, all the, um, I guess the, the th I think there's three that are highlighted in the in the exhibit. Two. Is it, is it two? I think it's two. I think it's two just Alejandro and Lumpkin. Okay, that might who be. Who are married, or not married, who are living with enslaved women. Um, I don't know that there are any others in Richmond. I wonder about Hector Davis, but I, j I can't recall if we found that out later. I don't later. think we know. We may not know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is there any kind of... Um, I would assume there's not a, a, an indication of um, that of that change of relationship, right? Like the, you know, I guess you can always tell someone that's just sex, but then there's always an emotional aspect that comes in. Alexandra Finley, she is at, uh, well, I think she's finished now her dissertation at William & Mary, and she specifically was looking at the case of Karina and, and Silas Omohundro. Okay. to try to unravel exactly what that relationship looked like. One of the really perverse things, I think, about that case is that she took part in the business. End of thing. She actually took people to be dressed, for instance. Mm -hmm. So she's, a, a, in some ways, a business partner, and uh, that was not an unusual thing. And so if, if you think about 19th century marriage, right. uh, I mean, granted, there is this Victorian sensibility that arises about romantic you know, marriage, etc., but Marriage, through most of our history, has been largely, in many ways, is an economic institution. Sure. And so it's very difficult to know um, exactly. It's not like we have letters between them to tell what that relationship was. A few things you can glean. We know that a number of these, both Omaha and Lumpkin, sent their children north to be educated. Sure. So they, we know that they, you know, that they didn't want the same fate for their children that that the, uh, the thousands of other people that they were selling were encountering. So, And provided for their freedom and their wills. That's right. right. 
So, so we see there that uh, what fam that there is a sense of family, but how bizarre, right? That this is that on the flip side they can, and this to me indicates one of the most fundamental things of anything I point I make to everybody when I'm talking about all this is human beings have an amazing capacity to compartmentalize yes. things that boggles our mind. We somehow imagine that if there's a logical contradiction in people's behavior that this is some crazy, like how is that possible that they can do these, well we do that all the time. Every yeah. one of us does that. I mean we live in a country which um, you know, rivals some of the worst regimes in the world in mass incarceration. Right. Well that's been going on since we've all been alive. Now, you know, whatever position you take on that, I guarantee you in 150 years as a historian that's going to look back and go, what were these people thinking? Right. Right? We've allowed that to happen. We don't, we don't have to see it, just like we, right. you didn't have to see Wall Street. I mean, so I think there's a contemporary that we have this ability to, to be blind to things that do not serve you know, the way we want to see the world. Well, and it seems like within a survivalist technique as well, I mean, if she's going to get advantages, you know, as a woman or even, um, and I don't even or know. Or even uh, freedom for her children. Right. I was going to say, I, I can't right. remember right. what. So um, by her playing along, some, her children are guaranteed to be free. Right. And someone, it was a, it was some, I can't even remember what it was, what lecture or who it was that was saying that, um, that, by doing that, you know, it wasn't specifically talking about her, but she then freed more people than all slave insurrections combined, right? Which that's like five people. Like, it never, yeah. you know, like never has a slave, you know, vi the violence never worked, right? But she, you know, whatever, uh, her and her kids, I mean... I'll, I'll parallel you know, it to a really great case that's in our collection, and we have these freedom suits where women are trying to prove ancestry from a free from a free woman mm -hmm. because remember uh, slavery transferred through through the the maternal line so uh, there's a this incredible case that goes on for years and years and years of this woman Rachel Finley who's who's trying to get her freedom but in the end she doesn't get her freedom until she's in her I think she's in her 60s what's she really doing well she's got if, if she becomes free guess who else becomes free mm -hmm. right her right. children her grandchildren She's ending up freeing, as you said, many, many more people than just herself. At that point in her life, sure, it's great to be free, but she's lived most of her life as a slave. Right. That's the reality. But she pushes this case in several counties. She, she's in Powhatan, and she gets taken out to Wythe County. and I mean, it's, it's just an amazing tale. But it shows how that, you know, I think that is a good parallel, mm -hmm. perhaps, to what Karina um, Hundred was thinking. Um, well, yeah, and we all want to think that, like, if we were in that house, we would have all hidden Anne Frank. But then when you really think with your family and you're, you know, put in that position, are you really going to, you know, how could they do it until you're in their shoes? And it's like, oh, wait, this is exactly how they could do it. Um, I had so many people ask me that question about slave revolts. Why didn't they just rise up? And, and, and until you understand how extensive and pervasive the structures of control were, mm -hmm. You know, uh, when after after John Brown's raid, uh, Southerners trumpet the fact that that the slaves didn't rise up and join John Brown. Well, yeah, they were they were acting in a very rational way because they knew what the consequences they knew what the consequences of Nat Turner had been, right. which was hundreds of people being randomly killed in those communities. Right. These these incredible, you know, I mean it. it 
there was a, there's a there's a wonderful one of the rarest documents uh, a manuscript um, uh, slave narrative written at the time when this person is still a slave Fields Cook and he talks about the how the Nat Turner raid affected him and how people were shooting into houses and rampaging through the neighborhood and and he literally says in this thing I wish he had never been born that Nat Turner had ever been born. You know, that's wow. the reality. That that's what it would have been like to after in the aftermath of something like that. That's that's amazing, right? I mean, it's, it's, an, it's I I you know I can't really think of too many other examples. It's at the Library of Congress. It's a remarkable document, and actually, we have a really good biography of him uh, through our a biography project that we do here at the library, where we found out a lot more about him, which was really great, uh, and what he did after the Civil War. And I think it's weird as well. The um, without leaders, I mean, I think that's a that's a huge part. That I think, you know, where you're sitting by yourself and you're thinking, should I? You know, everyone else is doing it, but there's no. Um, you're not going to lectures where they're talking about we're going to revolt tomorrow. You know, how do you even how do you communicate? Right. How, there's a there's that. a wonderful new book that came out on Gabriel's Rebellion. Um, uh, Mick Nichols wrote, and one of the things he does is he lays that that conspiracy on the landscape. And he shows why certain people knew and others didn't, based on roads and, and all those things we talked about earlier. That, that who can you communicate with? Who do you think can keep a secret? All of these things have to come into play. And so you have a very strange kind of uh, geography where you have a group in Richmond, Caroline County, up the Brook Road. I mean, so he, he really reconstructs how that thing was constructed, of course, it failed. It, it never even came off because of this giant storm that happened the night that it was all supposed to go down, and it would have failed, probably would have failed anyways. Right. And as I understand as well, he was turned in by um, a, a, a fellow slave down on a boat that was hoping to get the reward to buy his own freedom, and only got like a, a smidgen of the amount that he was supposed to get, which... Well, and again, um, you think about what the aftermath of that event was, where how many people were, 26, 27 people are executed, uh, some were, others were transported. Uh, I mean, it, again, this, this, it, this was not, a, this was not Haiti, it was not Saint-Domingue, where, where African-Americans, uh, uh, or I should say, what do you want to call them, Af Afro-French? Uh, right. Afro but, but, but the African heritage people who live there are the vast majority and where you have essentially most of the plantation owners are absentee. Yeah. So, so in that kind of environment, you can see how rev that revolution could succeed much more difficult to pull right. off in, in the United States. And I think that's an interesting uh, kind of bringing it all circular is that there, that heritage is already here. That there is that these folks are not African. I mean, at that point, because it, you know, a lot of these folks have been here for what 10, 10, 20 generations already. Right by the time Richmond really becomes, although if you, some. although I, you know, I've thought about this because you know, you, we, I do think about terminology and it, and you know, I, and we do you kind of use as a shorthand African American, which is you know the most common usage these days. Yeah. But think about someone who say was imported at the end of the slave trade right. in, say, um, let's say 1780. Right. They could easily, you know, be, they could be, you know, if they were a child when they came over, right. they could, they, they would have been alive potentially late into the antebellum period. Right. So, now granted, again, you're absolutely right, there also were people who 
had how many generations going back to say 1670? Mm -hmm. But but it would have been a mixture, and and Virginia importation it seems to me has a particular chronological pattern as you were mentioning. It's very different than Charleston. Yeah. Huh. And I think um, we're kind of at this point where we could talk about this stuff forever. We could. Well, we could. Right? We, yes. could. we could. Right. You know, the one thing we yeah. haven't talked about that I feel like we should is really the enslaved perspective. Yes. Because yeah. it's really important to the show that we, <clears throat> that we talk about that because, you know, and it is, I, I, when I finish these things, I'm like drained because just the idea that you, we can sit around talking about this like this, it almost is, you know, it, it's after being a historian for 30 years and reading this stuff constantly, I realize how inured I am to it. And that when I see the reaction of people who go through this, have gone through the right. exhibit so far, you realize that it's more of a punch in the gut to them than it ever will be, unfortunately for me, because I live this, as I study this all right. the time. So, I, but I think part of that also is to get the voices of enslaved people and at least some sense, again, just what I think Crow was trying to do to humanize them in a way that they're just not a number. They're no, not that's the artist. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 and I really do believe that he 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 did see that humanity, and that was one of the things he's conveying in those images. But you know, again, I'm I'm used to seeing lists lists of people in their ages right. and what price they were sold for. But we tr really try in this exhibit to also give voice to them and what they saw. So you know, one of those poignant things I think is that big quote that's on the wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to make, my mind was in a tangle. My mind was so tangled. So tangled. Yeah. yeah. This woman being deposed after the war about what that experience of being sold was like. And you can imagine all the emotions, of how frightening it would have been. Uh, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's really hard for us. We, we will never be right. able to understand what it was like. But we do that through some uh, of the... Um, in the 1930s with the Works Project Administration, there were people who actually interviewed former slaves. Um, there are the court records that we mentioned. Um, so you get these some really specific, interesting stories. Right. Huh. And throughout the exhibit, um, even when we're working from artifacts that are mostly created by whites, you know, slave traders or an artist observing something, we're trying to add in the voices of enslaved people so to explain, so in the interactives that help explain the paintings, and you ask the question of, you know, why don't people look more upset? We're quoting from people who were formerly enslaved that explain mm -hmm. you couldn't because you were expected to look right, right and act right or else you would be whipped. Sure. Or enslaved people talking about the, you know, the, the really most inhumane aspect of slavery. Yeah. It wasn't being beaten. It wasn't being denied food. It was the knowledge that at any moment your loved ones could be sold away. Right. And we try very hard throughout the exhibition to give voice at every moment that we can to the enslaved people who went through this experience. And are the paintings where the beginning of the exhibit started? In many ways. In, okay. Yeah. And that has to do with the fact that I am a professor of art history and I teach history through a visual world. Right. Right. And so for me, the paintings raised an enormous number of questions. Sure. And I thought might provide us insight into a world that's otherwise hard to get access to. Yeah. Um, so they, they served as something of a window opening into this much bigger story. And they do serve as a really great linchpin for the sections of the exhibit. 
And when Maury came to the library asking us if we wanted to do the show, you know, we automatically saw how powerful those images could be to do that, but also how we could then build out the show with, with create even more richness to those stories by using manuscript material, broadsides, newspapers, uh, you know, objects. So um, I, I kind of feel like the show evolved into several layers. There is this great layer that talks about the visual representation of slavery in the 19th century. Then there's a layer that is really about the business of slave trading. And then there's that layer which is the voice of the enslaved in, and the experience that, that they underwent. And I think they work really well together, all those three parts. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, I mean, it's a really interesting... It's a really interesting show. So, thank you guys for putting it together. Yeah, thank, yeah, thanks thank, for the, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. Thank you very much, Maureen McGinnis. Thank you very much, Greg Kimball. Thank you very much, Jan from the Library of Virginia, for helping me set this up. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Hoping you found it as interesting as I did. Uh, let me know. Let me know what you thought at History Replays Day on Facebook on Tumblr at History Replays on Twitter. Email me, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. If you have any guests that you'd like to suggest, you can do it there. Uh, I have some really amazing guests coming up. I know we're going to be talking uh, some Louis Ginter and some Louis Ginter Botanical Gardens coming up. Um, talking about a little bit more about the Civil War and the, the Capitol during the Civil War. Uh, a lot of really... Uh, really amazing um, conversations that uh, I have coming up that don't exactly want to jinx at this point. Um, but I have some really amazing stuff coming up. Again, invest in this podcast, right? If you have a couple dollars you can contribute, please do. Uh, whether it's $20 or $100 or $500, every little bit counts. Thank you very much and make it a great day.